Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good Thursday morning to you. Uh, my uh, shout out to all those folks across the country that are suffering from uh, weather-related coldness and snow and all of those things, and especially those folks in Texas. Uh, we're, th- we're thinking about you and just hope this situation gets resolved very quickly. Well, today I have Kitty Haley. Good morning, my friend. Good morning. Kitty is a private investigator. Um, she is, uh, actually, she's an investigator extraordinaire, is what I call her. And uh, Kitty has written several books on, of all things, professional ethics. Huh. So we're going to be talking about that because uh, I have a lot of questions for it, for Kitty. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Kitty. Well, thank you so much. It's really fun to be here. I appreciate it. Yes, I think you've been on a couple of times before. And, uh, yeah, and that's number three. But yes. <laughs> then again, you've been around for a while. You've been doing this since the beginning of podcasting, and it's exciting that uh, you're one of the groundbreakers here. Yeah, 1906, I think, is when we started. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, I was there. <laughs> yeah. So, so Kitty, um, what started you down this road of uh, looking into professional ethics for private investigators and writing books about it? Well, it was something that needed to be done. It was really simple. Um, I've been around for a while, and I've been an investigator for... Uh, several decades, several more decades than that, actually. And <laughs> when, we, when we first started, as you all know, it was the wild, wild west. And yeah. I got involved in a business that was kind of a little bit shady in a lot of ways. And people were doing anything they wanted without rules and regulations, without mm-hmm. regard for who they hurt or who they didn't hurt. And I realized that I love my profession, but I don't necessarily love everybody that's in my profession. And so I started advocating for more professionalism. Um, I got involved with you quite a while ago when we were uh, both with NCISS doing some lobbying in Washington to make sure that we had access to information. But... um, all those good folks in Washington thought we would use the data inappropriately and hurt people based upon our backgrounds and the stories that they had heard over the years about how bad investigators were. Well, right. we're not bad. We're good people, and we do good things, and we needed to show them that if we use information responsibly, then we help people. We don't harm them, and that's what got me thinking that we really need to codify the rules and regs, the laws, the ethics, um, the way we think about dealing with other people and put it down so that we demanded professionalism of those people who chose to go into private investigation. And apparently it worked because I wrote my first book on ethics back in 2002 And I did it with the idea that somebody else would take over the mantle and improve on it. And uh, eventually somebody who was younger, more um, better at writing, I don't know, someone would grab it and do things with it. Well, time passed and nobody did anything. And things were changing. We had the internet. We had access to information that we didn't have before. We had new problems. And so I rewrote it in a second edition. And then back in 2012, I rewrote it for a third time. I'm not rewriting it again. I'm going to to let it stay the way it is because I realize that situations change, but ethics don't change. Which, and interesting you should say that, because I was just going to ask you that question. So do ethics change over the, over the years? Um, and, what, no, and what are ethics anyway? Really. Okay, ethics are um, a code of conduct, a way of 
a way of thinking that is um, acceptable to everyone. So we have wonderful organizations of investigators. We've got the National Association of Legal Investigators. We've got Intellinet. We've got the Council of International Investigators. And then each state has its own organization. And they all have rules of ethics, things, codes that people agree upon that they will work with. And so the the group mentality is we will do no harm, we will not break laws, we will present the best side of ourselves as investigators, we will cooperate with law enforcement. So there's many things that we all agree upon. And so what I did is take all of these various codes of ethics and put them together, sifted through them, found the most common denominators, um, used those and re-explained them and gave examples so that people could understand what we were talking about. But basically, it's professional ethics, how we agree that we are going to act to a certain standard. We're not going to do things that are against the law. We're not going to wiretap and, and, and break into rooms to take photographs. All of these things were done when I began my career. People would actually wiretap or set up cameras to inside of hotel rooms and entrap people. Well, we don't do that. That's just not the way to get evidence and information. And so it was kind of being mama kitty and saying, this is what you got to do. And people paid attention. So I guess I was a pretty good mom. Well, absolutely. And you, you're right. It was the Wild West. It, it was unbelievable what the stories that we would hear about. And, and, you know, some people went to prison for it, for exactly what you're talking about. Um, exactly. And, and we're proud of it. But, but right. ethics are more than it's, it's about um, It's about how we treat each other, too, as investigators. There has to be a certain level of professionalism, and, and I really have long been an advocate of professionalism in this industry. It's, it's interesting because I've changed in the work that I do, but I'm still an investigator, and I'm still looking for evidence and information, and I still want the that evidence and information to lead to intelligent decisions by courts of law and by juries. Um, It's not that I'm looking for the truth because I'm not sure there is truth out there, but I'm going to find whatever I can find within the limits of the law, and I'm going to let the attorney for whom I'm working spin it any way he or she pleases. But that's not my job. I'm not a spin master. I'm a finder of fact. That's right. And one of the things that, of course, as we know, that affects us as private investigators is the TV and movie portrayal of who private investigators are that goes back for, you know, for decades. And so, Well, I mean, don't you go everywhere in a helicopter wearing a uh, <laughs> finer dress and six-inch heels and, and jump out in time to shoot the bad guy and help the police, but keep evidence and information from them. I mean, I do that every day. And I carry a pistol in my garter everywhere I go. Yeah. No, that's right. Actually, that's really true. Yeah, no, we don't do anything in a half an hour with two commercials. And it's hard, especially doing the work like you and I both do. We're both into doing work for uh, innocence projects for people who are wrongfully convicted. And I do a lot of civil rights work. And it's really serious stuff. There's nothing lighthearted about it. It's not funny. It's not humorous. It involves people's lives. And if you don't take it seriously and do what you're supposed to do, not try to cut corners or, or grandstand or, or take credit for everything, you know, that's where the ethics come in. Doing your job to help the people that you have been paid to help, not doing the job for self-aggrandizement. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the best investigators are the ones that are staying under the radar and out of the press as well. The ones that oh. are really doing the hard elbow grease work. Yeah, it's, and it's changed over time. There are, there are more women. There are uh, people from all walks of life who are really doing the tough labor. And sometimes the labor is, in a post-conviction case, it's reading 12 file boxes from five previous trials to find that one piece of information that says, wait a minute, this person is actually innocent. Um, mm-hmm. There's nothing glamorous about that, and they never show that on television. I have not seen a single TV detective 
wading through boxes and boxes and boxes of files. It doesn't work that way. But that's yeah. what we do. For sure. So so back to um, you said that situations change, but ethics mm-hmm. don't. So what's the difference? Well, tell me, let's tell me go about into the Internet. You know, we have we didn't have the Internet 20 years ago as a daily source of information. Uh, we didn't have use of Facebook. We didn't have uh, Twitter and all of those wonderful private accounts that have all opened up over the years. And now we're not necessarily dealing with people one-on-one. We don't have to necessarily go out to someone's house and sit on surveillance to watch their daily activity. We can just log into their Facebook page and see what they're doing. And if you're a um, uh, just a, an, an observer of an open page, you can get a lot of information. Now, you may not be invited in to see the private stuff, but here's where the ethics come in. Can you pretend to be a friend? Can you ask to be um, accepted into the private world of a stranger who you are investigating, or is that, in the terms of the law, ex parte contact? And the answer is really simple. It's ex parte contact. You're not supposed to talk to someone who is represented by counsel, so you have to understand what your limits are. Yeah, you can look at certain things, but no, you can't look at other things. So uh, the situations have changed. It's just like you couldn't sit on surveillance and watch somebody in their house and then decide you should go break in to see what's going on inside. You can't sit in front of your computer and break in to see what's inside of that private page because it's private and privacy is important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Hmm. Um, so you mentioned that uh, ex parte communication. So that is when we're, when we're working for an attorney or when somebody's represented by an attorney, we have different rules than if it's a private investigator working, say, for a business or for a private party. So how, how does the, uh, when we're talking about Facebook, how does that privacy apply? Well, it's it's supposed to be private. We're supposed to honor the privacy of, of people. It's the same as breaking and entering if we use a, a ruse or a um, pretext to gain entrance. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were a couple of attorneys in New Jersey, and I think it's been about five years, but they were representing a woman who, um, excuse me, they were representing an insurance company who was looking at a woman who alleged to have been injured in some accident or another. And they were pretty sure she was scamming, and they wanted to prove that she was not a um, a victim, but she was actually quite well, and she shouldn't continue to get benefits from the insurance company, nor should she try to raise the amount of the reward she was going to get. So they instructed their investigator to friend her on Facebook and get inside and see what was going on. And it was easy enough to do because she was a party girl, and when the the investigator got inside. She saw what a party girl she was, and she was able to get screenshots of dancing and drinking and and doing everything from, but standing on her head. And I think she might have done that too. I'm not sure, but it won the case for the attorneys. But my understanding is that they eventually got disbarred for doing something that was inappropriate. They instructed their investigator to make ex parte contact. That's not right. When we work for an attorney, we're working under their rules of ethics, we're working under their code of conduct. And we have to be exceptionally careful that we don't violate anybody's privacy or have a private conversation with a person who's represented by counsel. There are other ways of getting information. We just have to be more creative. I think the Internet's made us lazy, but again, it hasn't changed our ethics. You still can't break into a house. You can't break into an account. And, you know, you make a really good point because there are, I, I know some investigators that think that just because the attorney wants them to do something, it's okay. Oh, my and, God. That's so important. Um, I've worked for many attorneys over time, and I worked for the Federal Defender Capital Habeas Unit. And there is always that one attorney that will say to you, I want you to get a statement that says A, B, C. Well, <laughs> 
Right. You can't go out and get a statement that says ABC. You can only go out and get a statement that says what the witness has seen. Now, if that happens to be ABC, hey, great, everybody's happy all the way around. But if it's not, you can't ask them to say something that didn't happen. And attorneys are always saying, well, this is my wish list, and I want you to, I want you to put it together and tell me what this says. I want it, I want it to sound exactly this way. And um, you, at some point you have to say, no, I have to interview the witness. I have to find out what he or she actually knows. Uh, this is this is not your um, uh, this is not some bucolic walk by uh, 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 a rainbow. You know, don't make things up in your brain. Uh, use what I've got, and what I've got is going to be the truth. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's going to instruct you on how to know what to do in court. And you're not going to be blindsided by information you didn't know before, and you'll know what you have to work with. But my job is not to make your case. My job is to find that information. You make your case. You know, exactly right, because we have, we have to have our own backbone. We have to have mm-hmm. our, own, our own core ethical basis regardless of what somebody wants us to do. Because sometimes sometimes it's it's crossing the line. You know, it, it's just, it's right on the line. Maybe it's not illegal. Maybe it could be inappropriate. Maybe. And we have to decide what we can can really do for that attorney or that client. Right. And, and well, just for an example, I, I've divided my book, the, the ethics book, which is, again, one of several different types of books that I've written over the years, but I've divided it into groups. So there's um, maintaining the integrity of the profession, and it's really simple. If there is licensing, then you must be licensed. You can't just say, oh, wow, that's exciting. I'm going to be a private investigator. Right. Any more than you can say, oh, I think I'll be a surgeon and walk into a hospital and pick up a scalpel. Right. right? It's the same difference. Yeah. yeah. Your licensing it means that there is someone who is taking responsibility for you, who has done a background, who has vetted you, you to whom you pay money for the privilege of being able to be an investigator, and then you have to live up to the standards of that licensing authority. Um, if you want to be certified, then you have to earn that certification. Um, you and I are both certified legal investigators. The CLI designation after my name is very important to me. It means I studied, I took a three-hour exam, I wrote a white paper, I had a grueling uh, verbal interview uh, where we discussed ethics and situational um, cases. Uh, It took a long time to do it, and I'm very proud that I have it. So you can't just say, ooh, I think I'll call myself a CLI. Well, if you didn't earn the designation, don't do it. So it's living by the highest professional standards and not doing anything that um, affects anybody uh, adversely. And then, so, um, so Kitty, you, you just you just gave me PTSD <laughs> when you were talking about <laughs> the CLI <laughs> because you were on the committee <laughs> when I, I was, did mine. I was. <laughs> yes, and that, I'm, I can tell you that was a really really tough day. But doesn't it make you feel good when you've done it? And, oh, and sure. it's something you carry with you forever, so it's the best. But I thought I was going. I thought it failed. <laughs> <laughs> Not by a long shot. Uh-uh. Oh, yeah, oh my God. <laughs> but we're, yes, it's well cool worth it. It, it. You you put the work into it. You're recognized by your peers. I mean, how much better can it be? You know. Right. Right. Absolutely. So at any rate, that's that's the uh, the part of of the ethics that has to do with um, with professional integrity. But then there's also investigator client relations. How do you work with your client? How do you bill your client? Uh, you do you are you truthful in your billing? Are you truthful in the um, amount of work and diligence that you put into the work that you did? Do you communicate with that person and maintain confidentiality? Uh, are you truthful and accurate? And do you do your best not to be biased against either the client or the person who you're investigating or the situation? 
so that you're giving a fair and accurate, unbiased, um, straightforward investigation. And then how do you put it together and communicate with that client, showing them that you've used their money intelligently? Because this is a business, and so many people get involved in it and forget that there is a business aspect of it. I've got to be truthful to my clients or I'm not going to have them again. And I want every client to be a repeat. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to be truthful. You know, maybe you did make a mistake. Right. But you got to face right. up to it. It's really hard. <laughs> Pardon? This, this is really hard. This morning I had to tell someone who is a relative that I had done some work for that, you know, this... This may not make you happy, but you want to find this situation is horrible and, and difficult, and, and you want to find this person is, is um, a person of ill repute and, and bad character. Well, guess what? They're not. Just because you dislike them doesn't mean that there's something criminal about them. Uh, so in doing a background, I have disappointed someone, but I've told them the truth, and I can't malign somebody's reputation just because it makes them feel happy. Yeah, it's, but, it's difficult. But that, unfortunately, we know people, I mean, not just private investigators, we know people that will do that just for self-satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't have to take somebody down to, to lift yourself up. And and basically, that's um, that actually goes to, to another part of my ethics book, which is uh, investigators' relationships with investigators. There are a lot of us in this profession, more now than there ever were because of media attention to what we do and because there are so many TV shows and movies and everyone thinks it's glamorous and sexy and whatever. And there are people that misrepresent themselves and in doing so also misrepresent others or they will tell lies about someone to get a job. Um, I actually I had a situation that's really uh, I think I've told this before. I don't know if I told this on your show. But I had a client that asked me to do a background um, that had to do with some injury. Oh, this goes back 20-some-odd years. And I was totally overwhelmed with work, and I, I just couldn't get to it. So I contacted another agency and said, would you like to subcontract this for me? It's not a difficult job. It's several interviews. It's uh, a little bit of courthouse research, and it's some photographs. And they said, sure, we'll take care of it. And I said, all right, great. Just send your report to me, and I'll be the middleman because this is my client, and I, you know, I want to maintain that relationship, and I will pay you directly. And the next thing I know, it's a week later, and I get a phone call from my client who they did not know happened to be one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And she said, Kitty, I don't know what you, what's going on here, but I just got a visit from this agency out of, you know, someplace in South Philadelphia. And I said, oh, why did they contact you? They were supposed to send me their report. She said, not only did they contact me, they sat here and they told me that they were really great and that you really didn't know what you were doing. And uh-huh. um, I should hire them because you were pretty much a neophyte and had never done any investigations before, which is funny because I've been using you for the last 15 years. So, you know, I'm happy with your work, but I don't think you should hire this agency anymore. Uh, and it was shocking that they went not only went behind my back, but badmouthed me and Absolutely. attempted to make me look awful. Fortunately, the person they attempted it of knew my reputation really well and had been using my work for years. And I actually helped her to get one of the largest settlements in a personal injury case in Philadelphia that had ever happened. So she was very happy with my product. And uh, she had to say to them, okay, um, just leave me your report and I'll get back with you. And she called me immediately. And the words that I had with them were not as nice. But no, you've got to be careful. You know, so, you really have to respect each other. There's plenty of work out there. I will share my my work. I will share my um, my forms, my systems. I'll share reports. I'll tell people how to do things because I benefit when everybody else is being professional. So there's. I want everybody to be wonderful. I want to elevate everyone in this profession to do the best they possibly can. It makes me look good. 
It makes the whole profession look good, and it makes it easier for us to do our work without having somebody stand over our shoulder like a big brother. So, yeah, that's why I wrote the book, because there's all that crap going on, and I was getting tired of it. <laughs> to put it very succinctly. Yeah. No, I, so. I actually held my tongue. <laughs> So, so Kitty, I am dying to know what you actually said to them when you contacted them about making this in. No, you can't hear that on the air. I have a, <laughs> I have a very vivid language that was born of being an investigator and working in the criminal field for way too long, and unfortunately, I was just straightforward and vile. I sent them a check in complete payment of their work product. And I have never badmouthed them as an individual agency because that would be doing exactly what I said that they should not have done. But I will never recommend them. And when I've been asked if they should join agencies and, um, you know, places like Dalian and Telnet and CII, I have always said no. I find them to be um, <laughs> reprehensible, and I, I think their, their morals are all off kilter. So, no, I have not helped them. Um, I haven't purposely hurt them because it's just not who I am. Right, for sure. Yeah, it just, uh, what, one of the questions that, uh, well, we'll come back to that. Because I don't, you, you know that we use your book on our newly licensed investigator program for the California Association of Licensed Investigators. I think I told you that uh, yes. several years ago. Uh, it makes me it. very proud. It's been and used we by also, in, a lot in of my, <laughs> in my PowerPoint presentation on professional ethics, uh, I actually quote you from the book. So uh, we're going to take a break with that, though. Kitty, we'll be right back with Kitty Haley. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PISDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with uh, my guest, Kitty Haley. Kitty is a private investigator from uh, Pennsylvania, and she's written three books on uh, ethics for investigators, various formats of, est- uh, of uh, ethics for investigators. So, um, but I want to back up a second, Kitty. When uh, Let's talk about when you first got in the business. How many women do you think across the country, percentage-wise, were in the business of being a licensed private investigator? Well, I know at one point I was the only woman in the entire state of New Jersey, so that'll tell you something. Okay, yeah. there, 
There were no more than, uh, I'm going to say there were a hundred of us across the country. Uh, but again, you know, I'm not a baby. This was quite some time ago. Uh, and it has changed exponentially in the last 20 years because mm. more young people are getting involved and there are courses being taught in college. I mean, when we first got started, there were no books to learn from. I actually right. called Temple University, um, their Department of Criminology and, and Law, and I said, I would like to take some courses because I'm working as an investigator and I want to understand the law better. And they said, oh, we don't have anything, but if you want to put it together, you can teach it. Which <laughs> uh, was ridiculous. Right. So I ended up doing that. And people of my generation are the ones who have written the books that we learn from, who have written the textbooks and the how-to books and created the courses and the exams and the certifications. And I'm really proud of our generation for making it a profession, not just something that every ex-cop can get involved in without a license. You know, we don't all... We're not all ex-cops. As a matter of fact, the investigators that I know who I respect and admire the most come from such a wild variety of backgrounds, everything from from stage managers to, um, uh, I don't know, well, me. I was an artist. So mm-hmm. it's possible to go from anything to anything. You just have to really want to and apply yourself and study and and learn your craft and do it right. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, so what do you think? This, this is a really off the wall question. What do you think about uh, the groups who are doing investigation in house? Um, you know, say like security professionals that do loss prevention interviews, or uh, HR folks that do human resources kinds of workplace interviews. What do you think about them getting licensed on the outside, using that experience? I- you know, it's interesting. I I think there's something to it, but on the other hand, they're not doing investigations. They're doing a directed job. Um, it might be called an investigation. It might be a background, uh, but they're they're not necessarily getting the experience that I know I had to get by putting in five years and uh, of full time work and being mentored by someone and learning my craft and doing everything from surveillance all night to interviews to, um, to legal research, um, reading files, helping to digest things, understanding the court system. It's, I think that there's much more to it than that. And I would, I would personally like to see that that experience is considered as a part of a license, but I don't think it's a full reason to grant a license. Any more than I think most police officers have the experience to become private investigators. Because the average police officer, unless he or she has been a detective, really is um, does traffic stops, domestic calls, fills out forms, and moves on to the next call. That's not an investigation. And it takes a while to become a detective and actually know how to go to a scene of a crime and uh, look at it and and, uh, section it off in quadrants and, and look for evidence and gather information and document things. There's so much more to it than, than just, you know, what you could read in a Dimester novel. Yeah, in California, uh, several years ago, they beefed it up to where you, as a police officer, to qualify for licensure, you have to have investigative, documented investigative experience at the police department. And I thought Mm -hmm. that was a really good thing. Because you're right, you know, somebody that's only been on patrol, for example, um, doesn't have investigative experience. Right, and I mean, that's not saying that they're not intelligent people and they don't know what they're doing. They know what they've done, but that's to fill out a form after there's been an automobile accident or a car stop, and that's not an investigation. Mm-hmm. And, and then there are people who have been in law enforcement who don't look at um, private investigation as anything but an extension of law enforcement. Well, we're not. We're the other side. We're the defense. And so 
the person that you've been calling that scumbag is now Mr. Scumbag Client because (laughs) you're looking at a different side of that person. You know, Uh you're representing him. You're not representing the state. Your job is not to um, put him away. Your job is to find out why he might be innocent. And there's a whole different psychology that goes into that. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely, for sure. So, Kitty, I know you have some uh, some stories because any of us have been around more than five years probably have stories of uh, situations where you've been put in a box or felt like you either had to turn a client down or, or instruct them on what the legality or the ethics were of the situation. So tell us about that. Hmm. That's... That's interesting. Um, yeah, I I think we all have. I think it's it's um, just one of those things that that happens where someone wants you to do something that you just can't do. Um, you know, like I said before, working with um, an attorney who's over anxious and wants you to write up a certain thing in a certain way. Well, that can't necessarily be done. Or the person who wants us to find that um, this individual is a is a real scumbag. Well, maybe they're not. Maybe they're just an overworked and not nice person. But that doesn't make them a real scumbag. So, I mean, there are lots of things. I use examples when I do um, lectures on ethics. I. I do some scenarios where I'll give ideas out to the group and say, what do you think? What's the ethical concern here? Uh, so, like, um, oh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm taking half a second and I'm doing a little bit of reading because I want to make sure that I give you some some good suggestions and good ideas. Um, okay, so... For example, and this was a real one that happened, um, I was contacted by uh, a person who said, I'd like you to find out if I'm being followed. I think I'm being followed. Uh, this was a client who has, was wealthy, and they wanted to make sure that they were... Um, they were not being followed. They were concerned for their family and the safety of their family. So I sent an investigator out to the area, and he quickly spotted that, yes, indeed, this person was being followed. He was being followed by another private investigator who was a member of the same association. And <laughs> Right. And, so it was, it was, and, and the guy didn't even do a good job of hiding where he was. He was kind of out in the open and somewhat intimidating by being present outside of a cul-de-sac looking down to a very wealthy, um, expensive home in a suburban Philadelphia area. And the investigator came back to me and said, what do I do? Mm-hmm. If, how, how do I handle that? Do I... Um, do I, I was going to just go knock on his door and say, hey, dude, you know, what are you watching him for? He's our client. And, and then I thought, well, I can't do that because that blows the confidentiality that I have between my client and I. Right. Um, but, you know, we both used to be cops together, and I kind of have the feeling I should give him a heads up that he's doing a piss poor job and he's not... Um, there's nothing wrong with my client, and, and he's scaring the hell out of my client. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, but you can't do that because confidentiality comes first. And if you go and you approach this individual and you tell them that I know that you are, uh, you're watching my client, then, then all that confidentiality between you and the client is going out the window. So inform the client of what has occurred, that yes, he is being followed. And now the thing is, you have to figure out why are you being followed? Is it, did your wife do it? Um, Is this a business associate? Um, Because the guy who's doing it is a reputable guy. He's just a little stupid that he's parked at the end of the cul-de-sac. But no, you you can't. There is no code of blue. You don't let another Uh investigator know what's going on because there is no blue. That's not who we are. Exactly right. So, yeah. so did you 
did you think about confiding in your client and tell, telling your client what was going on? Oh, yeah. I was hired by the client. Right. So, so I mean, that information is the information I was being paid to obtain. And so, yeah, I told the client, yes, you are being followed. Yes, there is an investigator out there. This is the car. This is the license tag. This is who the person is. We snapped a photograph on the way by. Why are you being followed? I have no idea. If you give me permission, he's a member of our association. I'd be glad to speak with him, but I can only do that with your permission. I can't That's what I was getting at. I didn't away. word it correctly. Uh, so did she give you permission to talk to them? 100%, and her husband was really upset that it was blown. But that's another story. So it was the husband that uh, hired husband the other was, investigator? Yeah, the husband had hired the other investigator to see if his wife was cheating. Hmm. Interesting. That's an interesting one, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I said it, it, it is. and I, I mean, it's just a, an example of many Um Right now, my my biggest problem is that I do a lot of civil rights work. So in Philadelphia, we have a problem. We have an epidemic of, I'm going to call it police abuse because I think that's the only thing I can call it. I am not anti-police. I was married to a police officer. I had a son who was a captain of the fire department. I have a grandson who was a police officer. I admire the police, but I admire good police who do their jobs well. I think in today's world, there is so much um, fear on the part of police officers on how to deal with people of minority status and minority peoples on how to deal with the police that everything escalates quickly. And I have right at this moment seven police abuse cases where an officer has either uh, tased a child, um, chased someone until they were so desperate that they ended up on the third rail of a train uh, and died. Um, These are all cases being investigated, so I don't have the answers to everything at this point, but there's so many cases where someone who is mentally ill uh, has been um, the victim of too much police aggression because the officers were afraid of the victim. And a family has called in a, in a situation where there's been a problem, and the officers, instead of treating them like a mentally ill person or a person having a mental episode treat them as if they are a felon and should be shot. And that's not the situation. And it comes from fear. It comes from fear of not knowing each other, not knowing how to handle mental health issues, not knowing about the, um, the activities and, uh, of, of another race of people and not trusting anybody and being totally afraid. Every cop is afraid of being shot. And every young black man is afraid that when a police officer shows up, they're not going to know how to react. If they stand still, will they be shot and tased? If they run, will they be um, beaten up and accused of uh, avoiding an arrest when they've done nothing wrong? So there's this whole conundrum of what's happening. And ethics comes into play a lot in these cases for me because I can't interview the police officers. They are the other side. They are represented by counsel. Correct. And yet I need to talk to as many people as possible. So it means canvassing neighborhoods and talking to people who don't necessarily want to be spoken to because they're afraid. They are afraid of either the police or their neighbor or the circumstances. And so the fear is just so great. And I can't go in and say to somebody, we're never going to call you to testify. Don't worry about it. Because they are going to be called to testify. And and so I have to be completely honest. And it's it is an ethical conundrum. I want to be able to just talk to them and say, please tell me what you know. And they'll say, okay, but this is, uh, this is off the record. Well, Can't. I'm, not 
I'm yeah, not a, um, a newspaper reporter. There is no off the record. Everything is on the record. And the minute you told me, I know it. And I have an obligation to report that to the attorney that I'm working for. And Correct. they may just use it. And I, I have a situation right now where there was a, a police assault and a young woman saw it happen. She has a, um, a child who is ill and she was protecting her child when something occurred around her and she saw it happen and she spoke with me. And she gave me a beautiful statement that said they should not have attacked him that way. He was not bothering me. It was just a bad situation. But I didn't know what to do because my English is bad. And so I did nothing. I just held my child. And she told me all of this over the course of an hour and a half with my limited Spanish and her limited English. And we got someone to interpret it. And we put together a statement, and she signed it. And I gave it to the attorney, who was thrilled. And the attorney called her and said, we'd like to set up a deposition. And she went apoplectic because she's an illegal alien. And this will affect her. I didn't know that when I did the interview. Had I known that, I would have handled it differently. But... I had already spoken to her, and she had already told me that. And so it still is a problem. I'm not sure how to handle it. I informed Mm -hmm. the attorney. I let her know what was going on. I know this is a difficult situation. But the woman will probably be served with a subpoena, which she will not honor. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't further the case any, and it only complicates things. And so, yeah, there are these problems that occur, and you do the best you can as ethically as you possibly can, but I can't lie to somebody. Uh, She apparently thought this would be the beginning and end of it and wanted to help, but it wasn't the beginning and the end. It was just the beginning. And so I think sitting here listening to this, Kitty, I'm, I'm thinking that in the woman's mind, her risk is twofold. One is being deported, but the other is her life being at risk because she's testifying against a police officer. You got it. That's exactly right. She's totally freaked out, completely scared. And, and understandably. understandably. Yeah, right. And, and so, yes, I'm not sure that how that's going to be handled. That has yet to be resolved. Uh, it has been resolved in my mind. I feel terrible. Um, but I didn't do anything wrong. I did what I was supposed to do. And she was actually very happy to have someone to tell her story to. Um, and she did. And there you go. So sometimes yeah. things don't always work out best. So we're, we're kind of talking around the corners of, of racism, um, and I'm wondering what you think, Kitty, about how a police department, because a lot of it, what has been said over the past couple, three years is that, that it's a lack of training, it's a lack of this, it's a lack of that, but how do you overcome uh a police officer's years of influence by his family um, that may be racist concepts? You know, Francie, I don't know the answer to that. I'm, I'm a product, I'm a, an old hippie from the 70s, I told you. <laughs> you know, I used to be an art teacher. I went to art school, and, and, and because there's another side to my brain, and I'm concerned about... Other things, I got involved in this business, and I'm glad I did because I think I've been able to do a lot to help people in in this age. Okay, and but I've been through the sit-ins of the the 70s. I've been through the Martin Luther King sit-ins. I've been through the injustices, and um, I've also been through the 1968 Democratic National Convention, which wasn't so peaceful and so lovely. So, you know, the world hasn't changed all that much. There's peaceful protests, there's non-peaceful protests, there's people who want to get their ideas across, and the bottom line is there's very little hearing of what other people have to say. And we are products of our environment. We like and dislike people based on who our parents like and disliked. There's a, there's a wonderful song from... Um, 
an old Broadway show, which is you've got to be taught to hate, that you're brought up as a child and you love everything and everyone, and then you start to get the influences of your uncle who doesn't like this one and your aunt who doesn't like that one and don't talk to those people because they're black or green or yellow or purple or whatever they are, but it makes them different. And um, it's... It's hard, and we've seen it in the last couple of months with the amount of racism and anti-Semitism that has come out in our country. It's always been there. It's just become more verbal. So perhaps it's more education. Perhaps it's more situational um, education where people are put together to spend time. You can't learn about another person sitting in a classroom, and you can't be told, oh, everybody is the same, treat them equally, because that's not what happens. But if you knocked on a door and spent an afternoon in someone else's house, you might find out they have the same fears and hopes for the future. They have the same problems with education and and um, uh, providing food for their family and having jobs. People are not that different around the world, and we're finding that out, that poverty isn't something that has to do with race. There are as many white people who are in poverty in Missouri and Arkansas as there are black people. There might be more black people in um, North Carolina or Virginia, but Poverty is a problem, and people hate and want to blame someone for their lot in life. And unfortunately, police officers get exposed to some pretty bad people, and so they start to generalize. But all black people aren't felons, and everybody in prison isn't black or Hispanic or white. It's like a little bit of everything. And I think this job has sensitized me to that so much. Maybe maybe officers have to spend more time doing what I do and what you do. Go out and talk to people. Sit down and be a part of their lives in their environment, not inside of a police um, interrogation room where right. everyone is emasculated completely. I don't know. It's just a thought. Well said. Well said, Kitty. Well said. Uh, I appreciate, we're at the end of our time, <laughs> I appreciate talking to you so much. I don't get to talk to you often enough, and it's been a delight to have you on the show again. Thank you. I, you know, it was a pleasure. It kind of went in a different direction, and I hope yeah. I didn't pontificate too much, but um, I, I think what you do is a great service to our industry, and um, I thank you for continuing to do it. Absolutely. Love doing it. Thank you so much, Kitty. And to the rest of you folks, I hope you're staying safe. I hope you can get warm. And it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 